You're listening to episode 164 of the Mad Chatters podcast, November 15th, 2017. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Mad Chatters Podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney Universe. I'm Derek, and I'm joined today by my fellow chatters, Matthew. Hey there. And Jeremy. Bye, bye, bicycle. Try, try, tricycle. Test, test, testing is my mic on, testing. Hello, how are you guys? Lord, that was extensive. <laughs> yes. All right, well, let's talk about (laughs) some Disney news. As always, we're going to kick off the show with some news. And this first piece of news, you know, it doesn't necessarily put Disney in the best light, but I want to talk about it. It's actually something that caught my attention last week, but at that time it hadn't really really gone so far in the news, and so it didn't really seem worth bringing up on the show. But after we recorded last week... Things kind of blew up a little bit more, and it became a pretty big news item across the country. Uh, I'm talking about the LA Times and Disney. So basically, in September, the Los Angeles Times published a two-part series detailing the Walt Disney Company's impact on local elections. So the piece said that Disney was contributing millions to certain PACs, and had secured certain rebates and protections and incentives through these dealings. And this two-part piece basically said Disney had way too much influence over economic dealings, and um, they were trying to get Anaheim to realize that. So Disney was, of course, upset. But at the time, the Los Angeles Times reported that Disney had not asked for any corrections regarding the article. So they just kind of thought it was water under the bridge at this point. Well, when Thor Ragnarok was released a couple weeks ago, the LA Times revealed in a tweet that they had not been invited to attend a screening of Thor and therefore could not provide a review. And the reason was this article that they had Mm. published. So it was all kind of like, whoa, 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 wait, free press, what? Now they're not invited because (laughs) you're a little... um, You're a little upset, you know, about this article they published. You're a little salty about it, I guess. Well, Disney responded, we, we regularly work with news organizations around the world that we don't always agree with, but in this instance, the LA Times showed a complete disregard for basic journalistic standards. The company added that the Times published a, quote, biased and inaccurate series wholly driven by a political agenda. Hmm. So that was the big news. LA Times said, this is why we're not publishing a review as soon as everybody else is, because we weren't allowed to see the movie early. Well, that wasn't all. (laughs) After all this happened, other publications stood in solidarity with the LA Times, people like the New York Times, the AV Club, all these other organizations also boycotted Disney, saying they would not attend preview screenings for Disney movies until access was restored to the Los Angeles Times. And even organizations like the LA Film Critics Association, the New York Film Critics Circle, 
the Boston Society of Film Critics, these organizations said they wouldn't even consider Disney films for their year-end awards unless Disney lifted the ban on the LA Times. So once all these people started doing it, then Disney finally lifted the ban. This was on Friday, November 10th. Um, They said, after some, quote, productive discussions with the newly installed leadership at the Los Angeles Times, end quote, we have decided to let the Los Angeles Times back into these greetings. Yeah. I sound like there's probably poop in both buckets on something like (laughs) this, and it's just who has the leg up. And unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the uh, the LA Times had the the people behind them to make you know to make something happen. I wouldn't. I don't know that I would call it a a, a ban. Um, that itself sounds super politically charged. You're either invited or you're not. Freedom of the press does not mean you are obligated to invite press to anything. So. Uh, you know, there's a point for Disney on the same token, just because someone writes something negative sounding about you, you know, just be the bigger man and, I don't know, prove them wrong and invite them along anyway. I don't know. Well, uh, the obvious side of that is there are protections for corporations and individuals that should the press write something negative or false about you, you can take legal action against them, assuming that it is false. And so if someone writes something negative about you and you don't like it, even though it's true, that doesn't give you the right to just, you know, cut them off. Well, no, it does give you the right to do that. You don't, you're not, the freedom of the press does not mean that they're obligated to invite them to anything. Okay, okay, I'll give that to you. So LA going after freedom of the press is what kind of grinded my gears a little because that's not, I mean, if they're mad at you and they want to be childish and not invite you to their party, then that then that's childish and it's it's whatever. But don't don't throw out the freedom of the press thing. But it's also childish on Disney's half to say, well, you can't that's come to my party because on you, them. Yeah, you can't you can't come to my party and I'm taking my ball and going home because I didn't like yeah. what you said, even though it's true. Because if it wasn't true, I could sue you and you know make it a bigger thing than what it is. Um, but so yeah, crap in both buckets is a good way of describing this. It is a sign of our times, though, that this struggle between uh, corporations and government entities and the press—it's just—it's just, it's just uh, almost, almost. Uh, what's the word? When life imitates art, uh, and art imitates. That's a good art. phrase for it. Let's just leave it there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually surprised to hear that so many other newspapers and news sites stood behind LA Times, because in my mind, I'd be like, cool, one less review we have to compete with online. You know, people are getting more clicks now. Just be honest. I mean, Disney's Disney's the corporation of corporations. I mean, and it's, it's in vogue to, well, in the last 150 years, it's been in vogue to hate on corporations. So it's one of those things that it's going to happen when one press uh, outlet goes after the corporation. Corporation's the bad guy. I'm not saying they're not bad in this instance, but corp- the press goes after the bad guy. All the other press are going to get on board. Kudos to Family Guy this past weekend, by the way. If you didn't catch that episode, it's a very telling cultural uh, piece on, on just this very issue. So check it out. This episode is brought to you by Family Guy on Fox. <laughs> Watch it Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Well, besides the L.A. Times story, there's more bad news for the Disney company, and that is 
Legionnaire's disease was discovered in the Disneyland park after sickening park visitors. Uh, this article I'm about to read comes from the LA Times. So it's false. Fake news. <laughs> Don't lift that ban, Disney. Disneyland has shut down two bacteria-contaminating cooling towers after Orange County health officials discovered several cases of Legionnaire's disease in people who had visited the Anaheim theme park, according to authorities. Twelve cases of the bacteria-caused illness were discovered about three weeks ago among people who spent time in Anaheim and included nine people who had visited Disneyland in September before developing the illness, according to the Orange County Health Care Agency. Their ages range from 52 to 94. The remaining three were Orange County residents who did not visit the park, but lived or traveled in Anaheim. 10 were hospitals and one person, quote, with additional health issues, end quote, has died, according to health officials. That person did not visit Disneyland. Uh, Legionnaire's disease is a severe lung infection caused by exposure to contaminated water or mist, Authorities said they have not tied any other cases of Legionnaires to Anaheim since September. There is no known ongoing risk associated with this outbreak, said the healthcare agency. The towers are in the backstage area near the New Orleans Square train station, uh, each more than 100 feet from areas accessible to guests, uh, a Disneyland spokeswoman said. A Disneyland employee is among those who fell ill with the disease as well. So... If you were in the Disneyland Park and you were experiencing some lung issues and you were there in, it looks like, September of last year and uh, you've been diagnosed with that, you may be able to, I don't know, I'm sure there's going to be a lawsuit. So you can join in. <laughs> you get a discounted one-day ticket to Disneyland. Yeah, Le Legionnaire. And the thing is, it's uh, like I said, it attacks the immune system. And so it's one of those diseases that really affects people who are older or already prone to sickness um, as far as having a weakened immune system or anything like that. But it's still a, definitely a threat to just your normal person as well. Because we all get colds and have our weekdays. Hmm. Well, that's terrible. You never want stories like that to be associated with, you know, your favorite vacation spot. So that's a shame. Mm -hmm. um, now, here's my question. Would you rather have bed bugs or Legionnaire's disease? Is Legionnaire's disease fatal? Uh, can be, but it can, it's also treatable. Um, honestly, I'd rather have the Legionnaire's disease because bed bugs go with you. <laughs> yeah, bed bugs are pretty nasty. I've never had either, so once I have both, I'll let you know which one was worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's wrap up this news with something that's not all bad. In fact, this is a piece of news that Disney was in full control over, and they got to publish this news themselves. In a meeting to discuss their yearly earnings, Bob Iger announced a few upcoming projects for the Walt Disney Company. First of all, Ryan Johnson, director of Star Wars The Last Jedi, which comes out next month. He will create a brand new trilogy of Star Wars films. Now, we're not talking episodes 10, 11, 12. We're talking about brand new, new characters, an unexplored corner of the Star Wars universe, a new story, everything brand new. It could take place a long time ago. It could take place in the future. Who knows? But Ryan Johnson will be in, I guess, full control of this. And for those of us who don't know, what what does he do? What's he done that I would be like, oh, yeah, I really like that? N not a lot. We talked about how he did Looper 
with Bruce Willis. Okay. And now I'm blanking on the rest of his projects. Gotcha. Well, I'm just concerned. I'm, I'm concerned. Because <laughs> you're going to hit a point of overexposure. And so, you know, I, I like the idea of, you know, the films. And I like the idea of even the expanded universe films. But when you start doing, hey, let's explore this area as well and let's do this and now we're going to have uh, tv shows and comic books and all that you know you run a risk of uh, oversaturation i think some people would argue they've already reached that point i, I mean <laughs> i like star wars but i mean if you're not a star wars fan think you've had to deal with the star wars movie every year for a few years and it kind of looks like there's no end to it in the future you know, with the Ron Howard solo movie and then episode nine and then another, like, maybe Obi-Wan. Like, I think if I weren't a fan, I'd be like, enough already. Yeah, that's how I feel about the Fast and the Furious franchise. Yeah, I'm, I mean, they're not all that different. I do. I mean, in quality, they are. But... <laughs> <laughs> Matt's face when you said that. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that you hear about it a lot. I'm okay with lots and lots of Star Wars. When, when I like something, I like lots and lots of it. And, um... Yeah, so for the people that, you know, aren't fans of it and get tired of seeing it, I, you know, present to you Fast and Furious or something else that's stupid that I don't care for that, that comes in theaters. Just don't go see it or whatever. My confusion comes from, like, this guy must be directing this and, like, are Disney people just sitting around like, we like what this guy is doing to be like, you get, you get to do the next trilogy. Yes, that's my thought is that Disney is really pleased with the final product of the last jedi but i in my personal opinion and i told this to you last week when they announced this my first thought was it is too soon to be announcing this because a the fans have not seen what ryan johnson can do what if they yeah. hate how he's treated the star wars universe and b like we've only seen one of the three episodes like we're still so excited for episodes eight and nine we're right in the middle of this and now all of a sudden we have to about have to be thinking about a trilogy beyond this like can we at least enjoy the current trilogy and then talk about future i just think they announced this way too soon indeed because there's something exciting about a trilogy coming out and then a decade later getting the news that oh my gosh they're going back but mm. i mean i understand not waiting a decade but still uh so speaking of star wars disney talked a little bit more about their upcoming streaming service due to launch in 2019 it will include a live action star wars series now that's all we know it could be the skywalker saga it could be totally original i don't know i want it to be based around b arthur's character in the holiday special that is an untapped resource right there i mean they have to have a holiday episode right Totally. But can you imagine, like, what if it's like Tales from the Cantina or whatever she was working in? And each episode starts out, you know, she's like the crusty old barkeep, you know, wiping the table down. And she introduces the tale to us each week. You know, she's dead. <laughs> Shh, well, he's, he said crusty. <laughs> How dare you? No, I know she's dead, but, you know, you could still bring a B. Arthur S. type female lead to it. Or male. Oh. <laughs> How dare you, sir? How dare you? Gender bending B. Arthur. That's interesting. 
Um, it, it, you know, if if they do a decent job with this, I would watch it. Uh, it's not. I don't think they have to make it as excellent and as sci or as a like special effects heavy as the movie, and it can still be very enjoyable as a TV show. So I'm down. It be. It's gonna be Clone Wars, whatever that TV show was. No, it's gonna be like Stargate uh, SG One and like um, Star Trek Voyager and stuff. Just kind of like, well, this is nice. Hey, Voyager was good. It's this. Uh, what was the one that took place at the space station? That's the bad one. Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Some Star Wars fans are gonna be offended that you even compared them to Star Trek, but. Oh, just in terms of the the pattern movie and then sub quality series. <laughs> well, and just statistically, the more you start exploring this universe, statistically, the more chances you have for crap. And so that's my point: is you keep widening the horizons, you keep opening the floodgates, you're gonna have uh, an opportunity for lower standard of quality, and that's my concern. Speaking of low standard of quality. Also being released on this platform, the streaming service, is a fresh look at the High School Musical franchise. That's right, High School Musical, everyone's favorite DCOM, is becoming a TV series. This is surprising to me because I figured the days of High School Musical were past. They were they were beyond us because the children today I don't think are as connected to High School Musical as they were 10 years ago. And besides... Well, you know, I was going to say you probably couldn't get any of the original cast, but except for Vanessa Hudgens and Zac Efron, you probably can get them all back <laughs> if, if you ask. <laughs> when 33-year-olds play high school students. Uh, Corbin Blue somewhere is like in his room going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it's basically going to be Disney's Glee. You know, I mean, a musical that takes place in high school. Uh, but besides that, the TV streaming service will also have a brand new Monsters, Inc. TV show and an original series from Marvel because, like, the Defenders, Daredevil, all of those are exclusive contracts with Netflix. But now Disney says once their new streaming service will start, they will no longer produce those original shows for Netflix. Instead, they're going to produce them for their own platform. So... Anyway, 2019 and beyond, many things to come with Star Wars and the rest of Disney television and movies. Now, this weekend on Saturday, November 18th, we're celebrating a little guy's birthday. It is Mickey Mouse's 89th anniversary of his debut on the big screen. Uh, so to honor the birthday of this legend, we're going to do a special edition of The Windows of Main Street, USA. They got their name on a window on Main Street, USA. Well, Derek, I'm coming to us live here on Main Street, USA, where I'm standing out front of the window of the man who really created Mickey Mouse, the one who is probably responsible for him more than anybody else, and that is not Walt Disney, as many would probably believe, but Walt Disney's right-hand man, not Roy, the other right hand, and that is Ub Iwerks. Ub Iwerks is a name that is really not well known 
outside of the Disney fandom and even inside the Disney fandom. He's not too well known unless you know a little bit about Disney history. But without of iWorks, there would be no Walt Disney, Walt Disney Company, Walt Disney World, none of that. Because he definitely was a workhorse and a genius and just somebody who was, was fine kind of standing in the shadows behind Walt uh, and, and made Walt who he is. Uh, we all know the story about the, or the legend about how Walt created Mickey Mouse, that he was uh, robbed of his character Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And when he went to New York to fight for him, basically found out he didn't have a leg to stand on. Taking the train back came up with the idea of Mickey. And there is an element of truth in that. However, if you look closely at some other sources, they had already started kind of tinkering around with a new character anyways. And so that may have just been the moment that they cemented the idea of Mickey Mouse. Uh, Ub Iwerks really was the one that kind of uh, took Walt's idea of what Mickey should be and polished him and made him into the cartoon character that we know today. Ub Iwerks was born in Kansas City, Missouri in 1901. He was the same age as Walt, a couple months older. Uh, he met Walt when they were working together at the Pesman Rubin Art Studio in Kansas City in 1919. They became good friends and decided to strike out on their own business partners and do their own sort of uh, cartoons for local the local movie theater. And they created the studio iWorks Disney. Now, here's a trivia question. Do you know why they chose iWorks Disney as their studio name? Because Disney iWorks sounds like a company that makes eyeglasses. Yes, correct. <laughs> and they were worried about that um, comparison there. Uh, from there, they ended up uh, working together um, on the Alice comedies, and that all kind of fell apart. It molded into Laugh-A-Gram. And when Walt decided to go out to California, Ub followed him out there, and they made their studio and continued their Alice comedies out in L.A., of iWorks was a workhorse. They say that the average artist in those days could draw just, you know, five or six pages a day. And Ub iWorks was putting out 100 to, uh, to 150 uh, sketches and, and pages a day. Um, now, in that day, of course, the artists, a little bit of animation education, the artists didn't draw the whole page. So what you see on the screen was not every they didn't draw all the backgrounds and they didn't even draw the whole character they would draw what was essential to that scene so for instance if mickey mouse is standing there and he's waving his arm of iWorks would draw the arm and the arm up onto the shoulder and that part of the body and maybe even a little bit of mickey's face that might have some animation to it and then he would pass it off to people who would fill in the rest they would fill in the background they fill in the rest of mickey that's not essential to the motion of the scene and those kind of things so uh he was able to just churn those out one after the other and a lot of the early silly symphony cartoons and mickey mouse shorts were completely done by of iWorks with just a little bit of help from from people who filled in sort of the the background details and that's because he could do so many drawings per day so many drawings per day, and not only so many drawings, but the the level of consistency in those drawings. Mm. You know, y you and I, I'm not an artist, and Derek's not an artist. Matt's, Matt can draw pretty decently. Uh, but if I tried to draw the same picture to look the exact same, I would be like, oh, the nose is too big in this one, and erase it, or the ears are 
funky on this one. So there is uh, some difficulty into making the character look consistent from page to page as well. And so Ub was able to do that pretty well. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't these Mickey Mouse drawings come after actually Ub actually split ways from Walt for a brief time? No, he didn't split ways until the 1930. Uh, okay. So he was gone from the studio from 1930 to 1940. Um, and he got the the backing to start his own studio during that time. Um, part of the reason they say that he left was because, as we know, Walt Disney was known for being a taskmaster and sort of driving his artists to the point of breaking. And since Ub Iwerks really carried the, the majority of the animation during that time for the Silver Symphonies, for the Mickey Mouse shorts, he was just pushed and pushed and pushed by Walt to the point that he was just like, I need a break. And their friendship and their business partnership really suffered during that time. Uh, Ub went out, started his own studio, and had his own main character, uh, most famous character. Anybody know who it is? I don't. It was a character by the name of Flip the Frog. And so oh, you can yeah. find some Flip the Frog cartoons on YouTube. Um, oh, Flip. Yeah, it'll flip. Uh, but then Ub came back to the Disney studio in 1940, and he didn't come back to animation. He came back to more of the special effects side, including uh, helping the, with the creation of the multi-plane camera, which is most famously seen in the opening shot of Pinocchio, as well as other uh, animation for uh, the live action and animation special effects in Song of the South. And besides the multiplane camera, he also helped create the multi-head optical printer, which was used to combine live action and animation. So like Song of the South and Melody Time. And for this optical printer, he actually won two Academy Awards for designing it, which is kind of cool. I feel like Ub Iwers was always that guy who was in the background creating the magic and never got the full credit that he deserved. And I'm sure it kind of ate away at him at times, but... I also get the impression that he was kind of fine with it sometimes as well, that he was not the public figure. Uh, the thing that I found really interesting about Ub Iwerks, and you can see this in his own animation studio cartoons, and that is he had a very twisted sense of humor. Uh, it was very just kind of out there. Some of the things that, that you see in the cartoons that he produced uh, outside of the Disney studio, very trippy, very uh, almost psychedelic <laughs> in a way. Um, and that was just who he was, just a quirky sense of humor. In fact, animator Chuck Jones, who is most famous for the Looney Tunes and those kind of things, uh, he worked for the iWorks studio in his youth. And he said, iWorks is screwy spelled backwards. And so when you look at iWorks, it's S-K-R-E-W-I when you spell it backwards. So wow. he said it's screwy backwards, and that described Ub iWorks perfectly. Uh, Ub iWorks died in 1971 of a myocardial infarction, uh, but his legacy continues today. His son, Don iWorks, went on to work for the Disney Disney company in uh, an executive role. And his granddaughter, Leslie Iwerks, is a um, document documentary filmmaker. <laughs> I almost said documentarian, but I knew that wasn't Documentary. <laughs> She's a documentary filmmaker, and she has produced um, a great, two great uh, documentaries. One is the Pixar story, which if you haven't seen it is wonderful, and it's basically about the creation of the Pixar company that we know today. And her other one is about her grandfather, 
called The Hand Behind the Mouse, The Ub Iwerks Story. I think this is available to view online somewhere, maybe on YouTube. I know it is on the Leonard Nimoy, nope, Leonard Malton uh, <laughs> collection. Remember when he put out all those Disney tin can collections? Yeah. Okay, so there's one that is Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and all the known shorts were put on there. And this documentary is put on there as well. It is fantastic. I think if you are a Disney fan and you like Disney history, you need to check out The Hand Behind the Mouse, the Ub Iwerks story for more about Ub Iwerks. Ub Iwerks invented the multiplaying camera as Disney would come to use it. Okay, yeah, I questioned that earlier because Jeremy said the multiplane camera. I thought it was the multi-head printer, but it's kind of both, I guess. Yeah, as everything I'm looking at gives him credit for inventing it. Uh, pop, well, not, you know, other versions were kind of like proto- a prototype before his, but the one that he did was the one that Disney would use. Yeah, one of the websites I was reading pointed out that the optical printer was a major factor in Star Wars in 1977, and they were talking about how basically Ub's invention was a direct uh, I guess it was just directly used, you know, for that film, a very important factor, so that's kind of cool. Um, but even besides those printers and the uh, the multiplane camera, like you said, he also developed special effects techniques for animation. There's something called the sodium vapor process, which uh, I was trying to read what it was, it was really confusing to me, but apparently it's used very heavily in the penguin dancing scene in Mary Poppins, and of iWorks won another Oscar for that scene, for utilizing this sodium vapor process. And then later he even adapted the Xerox process for animation, which eliminated the need for hand inking every single cell, and he could just like copy it using this Xerox. Um, and he did, let's not forget, do have a few contributions in the parks. Like, It's a Small World, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, The Hall of Presidents. Um, apparently his hands are all over those attractions as well. He also was uh, nominated for an Oscar for his work on the special effects of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. So he did things outside the Disney studio as well. Yeah, and I think it all went back to that printer. Alfred Hitchcock said, Alfred Hitchcock said, I think I want some of that if you don't mind letting me borrow him. So, I can hear him saying that. Yes, absolutely. I think I want some of that. <laughs> well, it was Walt who said it all started with the mouse, and it re- and it did, which means it all started with Ub Iwerks in a sense. Be- <laughs> yes, he he drew the first Mickey Mouse. I mean, that's he's credited with that, right? With with drawing the first Mickey Mouse, he definitely animated the sh- the first Mickey Mouse cartoon. Which fun fact is not Steamboat Willie is not associated with the birthday we're talking about. Um, he animated the silent cartoon Plain Crazy, which did not pick up a distributor, which was not picked up by a distributor. Then they did the Gallopin' Gaucho, again, not picked up. But the third cartoon, Steamboat Willie, was released on November 18th, 1928, and that's what we know as Mickey Mouse's birthday. Something that's always interests me about Mickey, since it is his 89th birthday, Mickey is not... 
Mickey Mouse in those shorts, but he is playing a role. So that's why it's called Steamboat Willie. It's Mickey Mouse playing the role of Steamboat mm-hmm. Willie in the same way that Clark Gable played a role or, you know, whoever plays Meryl Streep plays a role. Um, so uh, keep that in mind when you watch those early shorts that, that the, the mindset was not this is Mickey Mouse on a steamboat, but this is Mickey Mouse playing the role of Steamboat Willie, who is a steamboat. I don't know, captain? He's not the captain. He's uh, yeah, he's captain. He's, yeah, why not? Yeah, well, he kind of throws Pete out, so I'm the captain now, kind of thing. <laughs> I also did not realize until doing this research that Ub was born Ub U B B E, but then when they moved to Hollywood, he thought Ub would be or U B would be more palatable, I guess, mm-hmm. for Hollywood execs. So, very interesting. Yeah, I don't know where his window is exactly, but I'm looking at a picture of it on the Disney Parks blog, and it actually has his name and his son, Don Iwerks' name, on the same window. Very nice. Yeah, I'm standing out underneath it right now. As I mentioned, I'm live on Main Street, and it's right here. It's beautiful. It's just gorgeous. Derek and I have actually been to the theater where Steamboat Willie premiered in 1928. We didn't know this at the time. We, I learned this after we had already been there. The Regal in Nashville? <laughs> yes, we were there this weekend uh, watching uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Um, no, it was it's the Broadway Theater, which oh. is what it's called now in New York City. At the time, it wasn't called that, but we saw Sister Act, the musical there, and that is the theater where, where Steamboat really premiered. I don't think I knew that. That's pretty cool. Full of fun facts today. Now, we said that Walt drew the original Mickey, correct? And then Ub perfected and refined it. It depends on who's telling the story, I think. Yes. And the the the, the drawings at the at the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum that we saw, which they say are the earliest known drawings to Mickey Mouse that they have on hand. Um, they look very refined to me. And they look like the Mickey that's in Plane Crazy and all those. So yeah. I don't know if they know exactly who drew them, but they look like they were drawn by Up. But all the stories that I've seen say that Walt kind of already knew he was going to lose Oswald or had some inkling, or they were at a point where they were kind of realizing that Oswald was running his course, and they were already coming up with some new sketches for characters as it was. So that's why out of those sketches, you're getting like Horace... Uh, horse collar and Clarabelle and all that and they had sketched a mouse looking figure I just and didn't so, want to I didn't want to follow the naysaying PBS and you thought Walt Disney drew me uh-uh. it was a by works well the truth is I mean Walt sketched him but by the time they started making the cartoons Walt was not drawing hardly well, anything no of course not I mean, of, of course not but Walt Mickey was Walt's baby unless walt had like some it would ha- it would have to be some kind of weird arrangement where walt's like look uh i'm gonna tell this story for the rest of my life <laughs> and you're just gonna have to eat it okay so <laughs> well, i thought it was interesting that the d23 website um had this quote in the article and not only was it in the article but you know how sometimes they pull out quotes and make them in huge letters in the middle of the page this was pulled out it said ub is credited with sketching mickey mouse for the first time that was on D23. And then the Walt Disney Family Museum, which you mentioned, 
uh, has this whole piece about of iWorks, and it, when it talks about him sketching Mickey Mouse, it says, these are the sketches we have on display at our museum. So I think those are the ones you and I saw. Those were Ub himself who drew those. It kind of sounds like it could be the situation uh, that you have with uh, Horse, Horse Collar, and Claire Bell Cow that we've talked about already, where you have these characters that are out there, that are unnamed, that are just kind of floating around this universe that you've sketched on a pad somewhere that, um, you know, they come back later and take on a personality and a name, and then you can say, well, okay, well, Ub drew the first Mickey Mouse. Um, I don't know. If, if, if Walt's telling the story, unless Ub just told Walt, which, you know, these are conversations we'll never know, unless Ub just told Walt, listen, I know I created him, but you can tell that story the way you want, because that's from Walt's own lips how Mickey came to be. I don't. That'd be very awkward for me uh, to let someone else take credit for for something I did, especially if it was Mickey Mouse for crying out loud. But uh, maybe they were just that close. I don't know. Here, you can tell them that you created him, even though I did. Well, I believe on Plain Crazy, he's credited as the animator and the director of Iworks's. So I mean, he definitely got his fair share of credit, just maybe not in that specific instance. And I guess he actually was the first person to sketch Mortimer Mouse, if we're being. Uh, technically accurate. Mm, yeah. Because wasn't it Lily who said that's a terrible name? She yeah. was. Yeah. She she was very proud of that, according to uh, her daughter, that she was the one that said that's a terrible name. You need Mickey. Yeah. And Mickey, we got. So happy birthday, Mickey Mouse. Saturday, November eighteenth. Go. I don't know. Get just make yourself some Mickey pancakes or something. it's time for everybody's favorite game take five yeah it's just a whip and everything now that's all we're well we're this good. is the original whip so oh is it oh yeah this is i right? didn't realize that well it depends are we asking walt or are we asking ub if this is the original <laughs> <whip>? <laughs> all right so uh this game it was where we uh throw out something and we use five words to describe our feelings on it or comic relief or whatever tonight we have five topics in which we are going to use five words to describe so let's not waste any time let's get to it <laughs> topic number one <laughs> pixar pier coming to dca okay five words pixar pier you are a child's plaything. nice that's from toy story <laughs> Four themes? No theme? Mickey? <laughs> That's a Luxo no no. <laughs> Our next topic is Figment's profile on Tinder. What would he put for his bio if he only had five words? Only my wings are tiny. Oh. <laughs> it's in the song. Yeah, that's true. I'm still trying to find myself. <laughs> All right. It's Figment, you know, 30, 35 years later, and he doesn't quite know who he is anymore. Ah, uh, identity crisis still. 
if we do if I do initials, that's just one word, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, I feel like his profile would say no fats, no fems, DTI. Down to imagine. <laughs> All right, next one. Uh, Coco pre-opening imaginations. And for the <laughs> no. moment, what nope. I say? Impressions. Imaginations. <laughs> oh, impressions. Sorry. Well, I was distracted by the fact that Matt spelled Coco like the chocolate drink. <laughs> How is it spelled? <laughs> Just C-O-C-O. <laughs> oh, well, you can uh, tell my impressions. <laughs> so, Coco pre-opening impressions. Not enough Donald Duck pinatas. <laughs> what is this Mexican rockadoodle? <laughs> yes. Uh, this is my absolute impression that I get about this movie, and I actually said this to Derek when we saw a trailer for it over the weekend. Jane the Virgin for kids? Nah. Because the guy, he speaks like the narrator in Jane the Virgin. Straight out of a telenovela, no? <laughs> Anyways, that's offensive. All right, next one. Uh, <laughs> Golden Girls Dark Ride. Golden Girls Dark Ride. I can't wait to hear Derek's answer on this one. <laughs> okay, here are my five words. Betty White something something cheesecake. <laughs> That's all I know about Golden Girls. didn't even try. (laughs) Blanche's Bountiful Boudoir Adventure in 4D. (laughs) Oh, no. So you get sprayed with water. Oh, you you get sprayed with something. (laughs) I'll be sprayed, for sure. (laughs) Lord. Uh, For me, just these are, I mean, my five words. There are literally no words. Nice. Uh, because if they announce that... It'd be like a trackless would, ride. Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. I would weep. I mean, it would be amazing. All right, and our final category tonight. What's that smell on Sunset Boulevard? Beauty and the Beast live. Because <laughs> it sucks. Well, stinks. Stinks, that's what I meant. Yeah. I mean, that makes more sense to the joke. <laughs> yeah. The career of every Hollywood male. <laughs> uh, I put it's the tears of MGM fanboys. Ah, salty. Smell them all. <laughs> all right, that was take five. As a special treat in celebration of Mickey's 89th birthday, up next we have an interview with someone who works very closely with the iconic mouse. This week I got to chat with composer Christopher Willis, who provides the music for the Mickey Mouse cartoons that air online and on the Disney Channel. I asked Chris to talk about the process of scoring cartoons 
for Disney, as well as the work he's currently doing on the attraction Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which is coming to Disney's Hollywood Studios in the near future. I got to tell you, it was an absolute treat getting to speak with Chris. He was very gracious, very conversational, and I'm excited to play that interview for you now. Well, hello, Chris, and welcome to the show. Hi, Derek. Great to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you. And of course, I want to talk to you about the work you've done for Disney. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a bit about your musical background uh, and how you started composing music for film and TV? Oh, sure. Well, uh, I grew up in the UK, as you can tell from my (laughs) accent, Um, and very much immersed in the world of classical music, uh, I had um, just this. There's a there's a certain there's a certain childhood that that people have if they get very very into an instrument uh, when they when they're kids, and then they all the all the kids at school that you hang out with are all the music kids, and then you spend all your vacations on orchestra camp, and that was me. I was I did that whole sort of um, uh, rite of passage. I think probably at every high school there's you, there's a, <laughs> a certain group of music kids uh that was definitely me um although i was uh, i was a little unsure about what i wanted to do with it i was i was mostly playing the piano and i uh i studied i studied at cambridge university and then at a, an academy in uh, the royal academy of music in london and was actually a pianist for a, a year or two traveling around doing concerts and i really wasn't sure about that um, it seemed to be becoming rather repetitive, and uh, I went back to university again and actually became a musicologist uh, for a few years. I, I was not—I'm not sure musicology was a was a great fit, but I was—I was very into it for a while, um, studying music history and writing a, a PhD. But it was while I was doing that, very much buried in my studies, that I—I I, I had been writing music more and more, and I just sort of realized that uh, maybe what I should be doing was was writing for films. I was having trouble with modern classical music, which um, is very uh, very spiky and strange and wasn't wasn't what I wanted to be doing at that at that point. And really quite suddenly in my 20s I, I, st- I wrote a, a bunch of music to, to create a demo CD and I got in touch with, uh, I wanted to wanted to reach out to some some film composers, and actually the very first person that I reached out to, uh, uh, Rupert Gregson Williams, heard my demo and and invited me out to California, and so quite suddenly my world was completely turned upside down actually, and I I went from cycling around Cambridge studying 18th century music to writing music on on Hollywood movies. It's a very odd juxtaposition and, and in some ways I was uh, I was I was qualified you know he, he was hearing that I was a, I was a good composer and had old school skills but in some ways I was totally unprepared and it was a real trial by fire but um, so I was I was mentored by him and then and then uh, his brother Harry Gregson Williams I, I did some work with as well and uh, uh, gradually that led to um, to uh, Disney finding out about me and and the Mickey Mouse shorts. Yeah, it, I did not know that Rupert Gregson Williams had mentored you like that. I feel like I keep seeing his name pop up most recently in The Crown, which I loved. 
on Netflix. Right, right. And Wonder Woman, right? Was that him as well? Exactly, yes, yes. Yeah, very talented. He had just started on a wave of uh, of DreamWorks movies when I met him, so I was I was uh, helping out and and just sort of assisting with the real whirlwind of activity that was happening around the time of. Do you remember B Movie? Yes. Um, and over the hedge, and and of course Harry was right in the middle of the sequence of Shrek films around then too. Okay. Yeah, Rupert has now now moved over into these these uh, huge. Um, uh, huge uh, superhero films and is doing doing wonderfully at those. That's actually since I well, yeah that's uh, I, I actually we haven't spoken for a while. I, I really really want to try and cross paths with him again uh, soon. Yeah, I, I can understand that you want them to uh, slip your name in for the next uh, DC project, probably. <laughs> well, it's weird. We're on we're on opposite sides of of LA now, and so we we used to hang out all the time, and uh, yeah, no, we just keep missing each other. Mm. Uh, did you have any other film composers that you sort of admired or looked up to when when it crossed your mind? Hey, I think I want to do some film work. Well, the, my the the film music that I was most aware of was older stuff. Actually, was was uh, Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith and mm-hmm. and, uh, and John Williams. None of whom, of course, I've actually uh, worked with. <laughs> um, but. Uh, um, I did get a chance to work with Carter Burwell on um, uh, on one of the Twilight films, and I was enormously impressed with him. I just uh, really found working with him very inspiring. He was able to maintain his um, sort of artistic integrity in the face of the, the craziness of the studio system in a way that has, has stayed with me. Um, he was able to, to 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 stand up to however many studio executives and say no, I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's right. Uh, <laughs> it was very brave. Yeah, that's not an easy thing to do. I like that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, what I brought you on this week to talk about mostly is your work for the Mickey Mouse cartoons. Tell us how you landed that gig. Was there some sort of casting call, or did? Was your name kind of known in the Disney realm? Um, there was, I would say, both of those things, actually. that uh, I had worked with Henry Jackman on mm-hmm. the Winnie the Pooh movie. Oh, I love that movie. And, uh, and we had, yeah, it's really charming, isn't it? Really it wonderful. is, and it's really funny. Like, it always surprises me how, how it makes me laugh. Um, and I, I actually, looking back, it's amazing how fortunate I was that uh, I got to meet some of those animators. That they they really had some of the old guard working on that. You know, the style of it looks so consistent with older cartoons, and that's there's really no mystery to that because it's literally some of the same people. Ah. Uh, so I got to meet some of those legends. Anyway, that that um, uh, I think there, there was a, an awareness in Disney that, that, I'd, that I'd been working on that, although Disney's is a huge company. In fact, it's not really one company at all. Um, so uh, I would say more than, more, than, more than Disney actually knowing about it, it, it prepared me for the, for the casting call for Mickey Mouse when it came because I had, I had spent these, whatever it was, four to six months thinking about mid-century films and cartoons um, and thinking about Buddy Baker and looking at 
uh, oh, who, who is the composer for those old uh, Winnie the Pooh um, cartoons? He's, he was one of the one of that one of that central stable of Disney composers in the middle of the 20th century. So I think when the when the casting call came out for Mickey Mouse, I was I was well placed to 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 put to use some of the the sort of things I'd been thinking about over the years. Um, but yes, they do a they 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 do a very sensible thing, which is a blind casting call over at Disney TVA very often so that the people making the decisions don't know whether well the person they're listening to is an established name or someone they've never heard of because they 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 know that it's that it that it tends to influence the way you the way you hear things uh, involuntarily well yeah i can imagine i that's really terrific that they do that i like that yes they're aware that if they're setting up a big project like mickey mouse that that may go on for a while and they get attached to someone very well known they may have the problem that that person is gradually getting more and more distracted and the the reality in hollywood is that you don't you don't necessarily get the person that you've hired uh you may you may get you may get their work filtered more and more through or diluted perhaps more and more through their assistants and um, other other people that are that are working for them so they they've they've learned several they've they've worked out and used this knowledge several times that if they can find um, people that have been behind the scenes who are a bit younger and less established then they'll get exactly what they're looking for but they'll also get someone who's very hungry and and they they won't encounter this this trouble that the person is is simply too too in demand and too um, you, you know too distracted to yeah. to keep doing one of these long these these long projects so it was a, a uh, the meeting, I think, between TVA and 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 myself was was really uh, really well timed. We we both uh, this mostly talking about Jay Stutley here, the head of music there. I think we, we both feel that it was it was it was just really good timing. That I was I was ready for for something like that, but but really didn't have uh, many credits, and and they were looking for someone who was exactly like that. Yeah, that's great because you've been doing it since 2013. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So I, wow. and I think, in fact, we start. I think the the casting process that I'm talking about was in the summer of 2012. Is that ooh, is that right? Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Wow. I was writing the first ones um, during the fall and 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 winter. So around now in 2012, I would have been working on New York Weenie and uh, Tokyo Go and some of those first few. Um, uh, yeah, and then now <laughs> look at how many they've made. It's unbelievable. Right. I guess it didn't really occur to me until now that um, like these Mickey cartoons were new to the world. I mean, at the same time you got started with them, they were new to the world too, right? That's right. In fact, I remember watching at, a, at an early meeting, watching a uh, an animatic for... Yodelberg, uh, which is the one set in the Alps, and uh, an animatic meaning a, a hand-drawn storyboard that that has been uh, put onto a put in, uh, onto the screen and edited, but 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 has no animation. It's just it's just a set of drawings. Um, it's one of Aaron Springer's uh, storyboards, and it, <laughs> the story is so weird. 
and the drawings are so strange. I, 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 because I know Yodelberg so well now, and it's really quite famous, it's, it's hard to remember. But I, just said, I recently had a flashback as to how <laughs> utterly bizarre it was. You know, just the, the pacing of it, all those strange, awkward pauses, and this kind of, there's nothing risque, but there's a kind of, there's a kind of humor that's, that's very grown up, you know, that, that, sure. that everybody finds funny, but including adults, because it's just so surreal. Um, and seeing that conveyed in this very abstract way, you know, I'd, I'd hardly ever seen an animatic before. It was just so, so strange. I just remember thinking, who are these people? <laughs> what are they doing with Mickey Mouse? <laughs> no, I understand that. Uh, in fact, I, full disclosure, I've only recently been introduced to these cartoons. And the look of it, you know, is so different. And the humor is so modern, almost. But they make me laugh so much. And there still is that common thread of Mickey Mouse and Goofy and these characters you've known and loved for decades. They've done a great work with it. Well, as I gradually discovered, Paul Rudish, who's the creator of the show, is is very much a, a student of Disney history. And so from a very early stage, the, the, the deep roots of it gradually emerged. Um, you know, the introduction of, of um, little-known old characters and little winks and nods and references. Um, in, in, in Yodelberg, we, we had Minnie, when she yodels, the end of her tune goes, Yoo-hoo, to, uh, to make a little, a little nod towards Minnie's Yoo-hoo. Mm. It's tiny things, you know, that mm-hmm. goes by in a, in a second. Uh, and as Paul will tell you, a lot of the things that people have found most radical about the shorts, he feels he can't really take credit for because he's really borrowing them from the earliest Mickey Mouse cartoons from the 20s and 30s. You just One just doesn't realize that some of these things are there. Like, for instance, um, having the characters speak in uh, foreign languages with no subtitles or explanation is something that he got from one of the old Mickey Mouse cartoons from the 30s, and I'm not going to remember what it's called, but it's set in Mexico, and Mickey and Minnie speak Spanish the whole time, and that's just how it is, you know, it just... What? <laughs> it's, isn't that crazy? So so one of the main things that people ask him about is is where he where he got that idea, you know, because the very first one that was released was the, uh, the, the, the Parisian one, uh, uh, Croissant de Triomphe. And he always tells them that that's that that's actually a, a not not his idea, but was just something that has has been lurking in the in the cartoon since the start. Isn't that strange? It, it is, but it makes a lot of sense too, because at Disney they're all about nostalgia and making nods to things that have been beloved for years. So, and it kind of works because you know kids today haven't seen those cartoons from the '30s. Uh, that's right, and they they um, I think there's a there's a natural progression that happens particularly nowadays with the the way the internet works, that that you would go backwards from from the new ones and discover and discover the old ones. Mm-hmm. So the references in a way would work backwards, but they still work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. That cartoon from the thirties stole that idea from the one that came out last week. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it is for for uh, for composers, I think. You know, you you hear these you hear these things in uh, in John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith, and then you realize, then you hear them later in, in uh, Rossini and Holst and whatever from 100 years, 200 years earlier. 
Now, when it came time to score that first Mickey Mouse cartoon, did you have a specific sound in mind? Because uh, uh, it comes to mind, for instance, John Williams, you know, likes to do themes for characters like Marion's theme in Indiana Jones, Leia's theme in Star Wars. Did, was he going to have like a theme or, you know, this is the sound of Mickey Mouse? We had a few conversations about that. And I must say, I was really baffled at the very start. When I when I thought of Mickey Mouse, I didn't, my my brain just didn't, didn't tell me what, what that sound was. Uh, should be um, we did decide very early on that that there would be a more or less total reset every time that they, because that's what they were doing with the storylines and the um, and the sets that musically we would do the same thing so every cartoon um, starts again you know Mickey Mickey doesn't have to live in the same house from from one cartoon to another and so in the same way the the musical material tends to get completely reinvented there are some nods from from one cartoon to another uh sneaky sneaky things you know if someone's if someone's sleepy it might play the theme the theme from sleepwalking or uh, just little little uh, winks like that or uh, there's one where some people are playing soccer uh in in uh, good sports and we hear the theme from um Oh no, that's it. Uh, oh no, no. The good sport. Good sports has a few winks and nods, but actually now I can't remember what they are. But we, uh, yes, uh, Paul had had a few instincts, but he couldn't quite explain explain them. And and one was that the thirties were a good place to start, uh, meaning Louis Armstrong and mm-hmm. Dixieland jazz and and vaudeville, and the other. The other thing that he was really feeling was the sort of mid-century modern kind of aesthetic, fifties, uh, sixties, you know, TV commercials and um, uh, this sort of retro futurism, and and then I and I, I he was telling me that, and I suddenly said, oh well, it, that, I know why that is now. It's because of Mickey Mouse, and it's because um, the thirties is when he was born, but then. Then later in the century, it's you know in the 40s, Second World War kind of era, it's more about Donald Duck, so we don't we don't worry about swing and things like that. But then the 50s and the 60s is obviously Anaheim and Disneyland and mm-hmm. the, you know, Mickey's Mickey's rebirth. So in a way, Mickey has two two. Uh, he's born twice in the 20th century, so we have these two two really quite different musical worlds, and that actually happens in the shorts. It jumps between those two or more. So then that actually seems quite normal, <laughs> normal now, even though it really uh, is quite strange. Yeah, I you said you mentioned Disneyland. When I hear um, a lot, a lot of times during the end credits, there's a very similar theme that plays, and I always get a ragtime Main Street USA feel from those end credits. I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to get from that, but exactly, yeah, yeah. No, as I as I've in some ways I've actually sort of stumbled upon things that 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 the others responded to very well and then it's only later as i've gone to disneyland more or explored the history of of disney more that i've understood why why we're doing what we're doing so of course yes you've got the um you've got that ragtime piano literally on main street mm-hmm. uh, which i think has been an influence and the way that the most of the mickey mouse characters you see playing the piano at some point you know donald huh 
Donald plays the piano in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and uh, Mickey plays it in Potato Land. Mickey plays it in Potato Land, and in the old Minnie's Yoo-Hoo, I think Minnie's playing it and Mickey's singing. Okay. Um, so there's a, just an association between those characters and this kind of. Uh, uh, I've got the piano right here. This this sort of you know, yeah, this kind of quite loud, quite loud bumptious piano playing it just sort of comes from 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 the from the visual actually of seeing them seeing them do that uh over the years i mean it's so perfect you can't hear that music and not smile you know right right yeah well i'm very curious how the process works for scoring a cartoon so is it okay if i just ask like a few questions related to that oh sure yeah you just have to stop me if it gets too boring (laughs) okay i I can't tell (laughs) Uh, so in what stage of the process is the music actually added Right. Well, in a in a normal cartoon, the basic uh, process is that while they are working out the story and the storyboard, they are working with uh, what you call temp or scratch music. So they're assembling the storyboard and just lining up other pieces of music that they found. To just to make sure that the the tone of the short is is the way they want it to be, and the pacing is is working. You know, with, with no music at all, it can be very hard to tell whether an effect that they that they're going for is actually going to land or not. Sure. And then, then when the cartoon has first been animated, so that the the timing is all is all locked, the whole show is animated. Then at that exact moment we have a meeting. They still have quite a lot to do because they uh, are going to call retakes. There are many details that the first pass of animation uh, has has come back, and there are there are things that they that the that the director, that the showrunner, the editor are not keen on, and they they're going to tweak. But and those are going to take a, a little while. But actually, a lot of the anim- most of the animation is done. And the timing is locked. So then, then I jump in, uh, and we meet, and we go through the show, and we go through the music that they've been living with, and we discuss what they like about that and what they don't. And then we, when then we we listen to it once with that, and then we throw that away. Um, and uh, then it's up to me to to come up with a, a demo version of of what I have in mind using the computer. So we that. We meet a, a week or two later. We have two meetings on that. They, they, they have they have two chances to uh, to comment on it. So that I have my first round of notes, and then the second time we'll watch it with uh, with an executive from Disney as well. And after that, then I uh, have just a bit less than a week to to get all of that recorded by the real instruments. So we have, have to get everything written down and book the studio. And if we have vocals, then we book a choir. Um, if we have unusual instruments, then I play like, um, let's say, uh, I, I say I might need a Chinese instrument. I probably wouldn't have that playing with the band. So I'll have that playing on a different, different day on its own. And then all of that is put together at a, at a, a final mix when we put all the sound and dialogue and music together. Now what that, what that whole process ignores is when there's a song in the show or when there's something else musical that we have to work out before they actually animate and then it gets enormously more complicated <laughs> and we we actually meet 
much, much earlier in the process. So if there's a song, we'll, we'll work out what the song is about and I'll, um, I'll do a, a, a very rough demo version of the song, probably with, just with a piano. And that song will go into the, into the, the cartoon before it's even animated. So when the animators are working on it, they have the song sitting there. Um, some episodes just required an enormous amount of uh, planning and thought, um, like the, the Hawaiian one where the whole thing is structured around Mickey trying to write a tune on the guitar and struggling with it. So in that case, I actually wrote some music before there was even a storyboard, so that all there was the concept and uh, and uh, the structure of the of the story. Um, so that when 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 as we go further and further down that road, you have to become more and more creative and and uh, and sort of think, okay, before, okay, before this happens, this is going to have to happen. Um, and the most extreme version of that is the um, Runaway Railway, which I guess we'll get to suit where we're spending years on it and the whole thing is is you know <laughs> is is it's an attraction it's a disney world attraction so it's, it's not that long but it's going to uh it takes years of planning to work out exactly uh, what's going to happen where yeah i can imagine and i do want to get to that uh but kind of speaking of that and speaking of what you were just talking about with this if there's a song involved i noticed on the l- most recent short or one of the most recent ones nature's wonderland Right. It included a sort of runaway railway, which I thought was funny, almost like a nod to the upcoming attraction. But it also included a song, and I wanted to know like what your involvement was in that. At the very beginning, Mickey sang a song to the tune of Little Wooden Head from Pinocchio. Was that something the writers brought to you? Yes, they had had that idea. And at the very least, when... Uh... Quite often, with something like that, they will have the idea, and they'll and they'll throw something in, and it'll be very funny. And, and um, there might be something about it that's a little chaotic. So, in order for the voice actors to re-record what the what the uh, what the writer or the director or, or whoever has 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 thrown in as scratch dialogue, I'll get involved and just iron things out a little bit. Um, replace the, the 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 backing track, which in that in the case of Nature's Wonderland was actually um, a little bit of the soundtrack of Pinocchio was just sitting there in the scratch track. So I'll get involved a little bit. Um, uh, very often, my wife actually Elise will will re-record the vocals. She has been uh, so when I write a song, she generally records the, all of the the scratch vocals for me. She does a a scratch Mickey and a scratch Minnie voice. Oh, fun. She's been getting gradually more and more involved. Actually, she uh, uh, she's the she's the vocal fixer for the for the show. So every time we need a yodeler or an opera singer or um, or you know a choir of mermaids <laughs> or uh, you know whatever it might be, uh, she's the one who finds the who's you know looks across the whole LA landscape of singers and tries to work out where she can find what it is that we're looking for. Oh, wow. Well done. On uh, on Runaway Railway and on um, Duck the Halls, she actually got involved in the songwriting process. So she uh, she wrote some of the lyrics um, in both cases. Um, it's useful to have a, someone who grew up with Disney. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, she's, uh, she's fantastic. 
Because you were telling me off the air, she's from Southern California and grew up going to Disneyland. That's right. Yes. Uh, yes, of course, we were talking about that just now, that uh, I had never been to Disneyland when I uh, when I first got involved with with Disney. But she is is, a, is very much a California native in this sense of of going to Disneyland quite regularly growing up. Now, has working for Disney allowed you to have any Disney experiences that we Disney nerds or maybe your wife found especially interesting? Well, the craziest thing that's happened to us uh, most recently, um, we turned up to a, a session with uh, with Rusi Taylor, the, the voice of Minnie Mouse, and uh, to, to work on a song. And there'd been a, a mess up and Rusi hadn't seen the song before. And so we weren't sure if we'd be able to do the song or not. She was going to spend some time looking at it, rehearsing it. Uh, and I had to leave. Uh, and so Elise, who um, really had just been there to discuss the contracts, as, as a vocal contract, to discuss the contracts with, uh, with some people at, at Imagineering. Because uh, Elise is a great singer and a great uh, vocal coach. Elise ended up in the booth with Rusi Taylor coaching her on the uh, on this on this song so <laughs> so to suddenly to suddenly be working with Minnie Mouse uh, I think was uh, was quite a treat um, but uh, Rusi was enormously grateful um, so they they kind of hit it off really well and now seem to be uh, great buds um, um, the, uh, another nice experience we had was that we were sitting in the Grand California Hotel and we ran into Richard Sherman uh, not that long ago. And so I told him about Mickey Mouse and he was, as you would imagine, incredibly charming and gracious. Oh man, what an icon. Yeah, he really is. He's a legend. Um, uh, I've been meeting some, uh, some of these less well-known legends behind the scenes at Imagineering hmm. uh, more recently. Uh, Kevin Rafferty is the, the the person running the show, and he is just uh, just the brains behind so many uh, of the of the big attractions, and he just lives and breathes this stuff. He's just he's just a a, a walking um, Disney magic machine. He just <laughs> he you can just tell as soon as you meet him that this, that it's genuine for him that he uh, that he lives and breathes this stuff, and. Uh, and Joe Harrington is probably not a name that you know. I don't know that one now. Current, the current granddaddy, uh, almost literally, of sound effects and sound at at Disney. I say granddaddy because his two sons are also sound effects um, uh, experts who work with Disney. Um, uh, ben and Roy. Uh, Joe worked with Jimmy McDonald, who is, who is the, the godfather of all of it, uh, sound-wise, the, the one that invented so many sounds that you associate with, with Disney movies. Um, and Joe has a wonderful office full of African xylophones and um, tinkly bells and contraptions made out of light bulbs hanging on strings. And um, that, it, 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 yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a real legend as well. Wow, eccentric! It sounds like. Yes, and really, really knows knows his stuff. You know that the 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 trick is with sound effects that you, that the sound 
very often has no relation to the thing that you are hearing. The, th the, the thing that you imagine is making the sound. You know, a, a, an army of ants marching might just be a, a sort of wooden rack with, with a bunch of pieces of rubber on. Hmm. Uh, or, or, you know, the sound of a forest fire in Bambi is actually just uh, some very thin pieces of bamboo um, tied together that you're just rustling. It's an extraordinary uh, kind of magic of tricking the ear. Oh, I love that. I, I feel like that should be an attraction at a Disney park where it, you, you know, that plays, it plays the video clip and then it shows you what you're actually hearing. I would be fascinated by that. I agree. Yeah, I think it's... Um, yeah, it's something something that everybody, I think, finds captivating when they find out about it. Indeed. All right, well, we've been dancing around it, so let's talk about it. Coming to Hollywood Studios in Walt Disney World, Kevin Rafferty and a team of Imagineers are working on Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and you're composing the music for it, so what can you tell us about it? Well, it's it's uh, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be wonderful. The uh, the attraction will take you inside a Mickey Mouse cartoon. Uh, it will come to life. It is. It does not involve goggles. It's, it does, doesn't involve uh, 3D images coming to life on a screen with the use of goggles. Um, I believe the term he keeps using is two and a half D. Two and a half D. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, it is big, as you would imagine, from the fact that, it, that, that it's taking over that real estate. Sure. Um, and to my mind, it, uh, the, 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 the best thing about it is that it is so clearly part of the, the history of, of Disney rides. Uh, there, are many, there are many echoes of, of, of older rides just in, the, in the, the, the idea of it and the shape of it. Um, uh, it's not based on a pre-existing story, which I think is, is, is wonderful. Yeah. Um, it has its own song, as I believe you probably already know, uh, which I think is a, is a, is a great part of the old Disney tradition that you had the Pirates of the Caribbean song. Yes. The World song and the Haunted Mansion song. So we have our own song that, um, knock on wood is, uh, <laughs> It's going to be, you know, something that you keep humming all day and that can actually compete with those other earworm <laughs> melodies. Uh, uh, the whole attraction musically will be structured around that song, so that you, you know, you hear the song at the start and then you'll you'll catch you'll hear snatches of it if you're not too distracted by the amazing things that you're seeing <laughs> <laughs> uh, all the way through, and then you'll you'll. You'll get the end of the song at the end, and it will—it'll all feel very, uh, uh, very much like a, a Mickey short come to life. I mean, did you ever imagine that you would be composing a song for a Disney park? Kind of crazy. It's completely crazy, isn't it? It's—it's it's, uh, it's daunting if you think about it too hard. I think the trick is to—is to just—is to just sort of concentrate on on the here and now and think well. I know how to write a good song, so come on, just get on with it. <laughs> right, yeah. that was going to be my next question. Are you approaching it like you would any cartoon, or do you feel like this needs to be the epic, most ultimate, you know, score you've ever done? I think the former is 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 much healthier. Yes, I agree. 
what we've been able to do to some extent is to work things out a little bit as though it were a short first and then and that's that's pretty much done now like i have a strong sense of of what the shape of the of the whole ride is musically and and and, and lots of music now um now is the time to start worrying about many many of the logistical practical things but you know with the with the sort of artistic attitude to it basically already settled so that we know what we would ideally like it to be like before we start worrying about um oh well we really wanted three seconds for that bit and now we only have two and a half seconds um Um, oh my goodness! You saying that just just hearing that alone stresses me out. That you have to be <laughs> you have to be so exact. It's extraordinary. Yes, it's a, it's um, the 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 detail of these things is is unbelievable. And the um, as I'm sure you've you've picked up from um, the more recent rides, um, the technology uh, behind what you're seeing and what you're hearing. Uh, has changed so much over the years. Um, most of our attention goes on the way what you're seeing has changed, but but what you're hearing has also changed enormously. Where once you would enter a particular room and uh, the character might be just saying three or four lines on a loop, and you happen to hear one or two of them as you as you go past, and the music is sort of doing the same thing. The music is just playing. A, a mood in that room and then when you get to the next room it's a it's another loop another loop of music playing another mood right now th- th- what you're what's happening is enormously more sophisticated and is being controlled by um by computers and uh involves different different layers of music that will be triggered by different things happening and if uh if a thing has to happen here It will happen on that on that um, musical downbeat. But if 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 you need two seconds more, then it'll happen on this musical downbeat. And it, so instead of skipping and sounding weird, the music will will um, will just change in a, in a different way. It's 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 very very clever, but of course brings all these all these headaches and challenges with it. Yeah, I definitely understand that. But I think in the end, it would be best for you because there's always the chance that you have this really this piece you're really proud of and then you're you're thinking oh well that attraction vehicle showed up at the wrong time so they didn't quite get to hear it but in this sense you can kind of control what every rider hears when you want them to hear it that's right yeah and you can you know that uh that walt disney himself would have embraced all of this stuff that would would always have wanted to push further and further forward and i'm trying to think of a of a place that exemplifies it and the one that comes to mind Is uh, at this? Is there a Radiator Springs races in Florida? Unfortunately, there is not. But I have ridden it in Disneyland. You have ridden it, yes. Um, uh, early on, before you go into the dark ride, um, the music hits a, a, a glorious uh, downbeat. Yes. As you turn and see the waterfall, mm-hmm. that is something just a, just something that seemingly simple like that would have been very tricky to do until recently because. There are so many different parts that need to synchronize uh, 
you know, if it's if it's going to hit that downbeat, then you have to know when it's going to start, and then what's it going to do after that. Um, something something as as straightforward and childlike as that. You know, when I round the corner, I want the music to go. No. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That actually is is very difficult to to organize. Huh. Uh, but now, and, and, but now is now is the kind of thing that we can do. Yeah, I will never take that for granted again. <laughs> right. Now, you haven't actually been to Walt Disney World. Hopefully, you can talk one of these Disney executives to transport you down there about the time the attraction is ready to open, surely. Uh, yes, well, in fact, we will need to be there to finish the ride. Um, uh, the Something I only just recently learned is that the sound for uh, a big attraction has to be finished off on the site. There is no, I, this is, I think, a very common question that someone just starting on a, uh, to work with Imagineering asks, and, and that is, is the whole ride built somewhere else beforehand? Um, and the answer is no, it's actually not. There, there are many, many mock-ups and partial pieces of it that are put together and experiments that are done, as you would imagine, sort of NASA style. But the, the thing itself is, is built on site, uh, only once and that means that the the sound where where if 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 i was if, if i'm making a, a mickey short we we go and mix in a big room that's like a, a mock-up of of a very very grand person's uh living room with an enormous screen and enormous speakers uh and then we actually we test it out on smaller speakers to see how it's going to sound on someone's phone now that that's possible with a with a, a film or or a TV show because you know more or less what it's going to be like when the person watches it. You know, you, we all know what TVs are like, um, and uh, we don't know what room everyone's going to be listening in, but we know that it's going to be a room with probably with four walls. Mm-hmm. Now a ride has enormous number of speakers, speakers in the ceiling and speakers behind your ears and the speaker under your seat and the you know speaker. Um, under the floor, and you know, uh, the 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 whole thing is a is a labyrinth of of speakers and sonic uh, problems. So in fact, what they do is is they is they mix the sound uh, on the site, and it can take weeks. In fact, so the 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 um, the double edged sword of, of of finishing one of these things is that you go. You, we will be going to Florida, and we'll be spending a long time there. In fact. <laughs> day after day um riding the ride and tweaking the volumes and uh um i don't know what it's going to be like after you know three weeks of doing that going to be very and we're all going to be in a very strange place i should think yeah and for your sake weather wise i hope it's not the middle of july when you're there Ooh, interesting rise it's a little humid in orlando i don't know if you're aware of that but. i have heard that that's that that's going to be a likely issue Well, we are so excited to ride this and especially to hear the music that you provide for it. Uh, It's definitely one of the things we're most looking forward to of all the projects that are going on right now at the Disney parks. Oh, that's great. Oh, well, I I hope we do you proud. I I think I think everyone's going to going to love it. Um, I know there's there's been some some people are sad to see the uh, the great movie ride um, being retired and uh, we're, we 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 uh, we respect that everyone's feelings about that, and we hope that we um, uh, get everybody very excited once they see what what we've what we've come up with. 
Ah, uh, yeah, well said. Yeah, we, we do miss that attraction, but, you know, change is inevitable, so we're ready for what's next. That's right. So you've got the Mickey Mouse cartoons, you've got the ride. Uh, you also composed the music for The Lion Guard on the Disney Channel, is that correct? That's right, yes. Yeah. Okay, so what else do you have coming up? Uh, well, The Lion Guard um, uh, is... Yeah, the middle of its second season, and I believe there's a third season after that. And um, Mickey Mouse is uh, is going great guns. Uh, I think they're on fire, uh, by the way. The recent ones have been. There are ones that nobody's seen yet that I think are just extraordinary. Um, I have been so impressed with them. I did not know what to expect. I went years without even watching one, and a friend has sent me a link to a few. Um, just within the last few months, and I've kind of just gone down this rabbit hole, and every single one, I'm just I'm thrilled with. I think they're great. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, I also write the music to Veep, the HBO comedy. I gotta admit, I'm a huge fan of that show as well. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's great. <laughs> yes. um, uh, we have another season of that coming next year, uh, and I have a movie uh, by the creator of uh, Veep. Uh, the Death of Stalin. Uh, it's a it's a British-made movie, and it is in a, uh, the odd situation right now of having been out in Britain for uh, a month or so, and is doing fantastically well over there, um, uh, and has ninety six percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something. But of course, nobody nobody knows about it yet in the states because it's not coming out here until March. So I'm very very excited to show that to every uh, everyone over here um it's very timely it's um it's about soviet russia and it it uh shows us a world in um political turmoil shall we say that feels uh quite familiar uh the soundtrack uh is coming out any day now uh, it comes out digitally on friday um and there's also going to be a cd and a vinyl version so i'm i'm really excited uh, about that great i'm gonna look out for that that's funny that you say that i i think i read a, re- a very positive review about that movie but it's been weeks now and i had yeah like you said i haven't seen any sign of the movie here in the u.s yes it's confusing when that happens um uh because we're, we're not really used to, to 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 movies being spaced out like that these days um but uh, yeah it is a wonderful film it's very very funny very very dark uh almost like veep in many ways Right, right. Uh, uh, musically, it's uh, it's um, it's I'm sort of uh, exploring the world of of Soviet music from the fifties, from the middle of the twentieth century. Very, uh, very, uh, very serious, very bombastic. Um, in some ways, it's 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 a it's a it's a real departure. But if you know the Mickey Mouse shorts and if you've listened closely, you'll know that they're all over the map. So in fact, there's been a lot of um, a lot of moments in in Mickey Mouse that have been every bit as as huge as this <laughs> as this um, film about Stalin that I'm doing. It's just in Stalin the whole thing goes on for an hour and a half, whereas in right. Mickey Mouse <laughs> the, 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 that that bit might only last for ten seconds. Um, Do you like that about Mickey Mouse? How uh, it, you know they're only a few minutes long, and really, like you said, each episode takes on a different musical feel depending on what the storyline is. I love it, actually. Yes, I very much enjoy trying to make it into one thing. That's probably my biggest concern each time, is to try to take 
whatever craziness they throw at me and try and make it into a little three-minute composition that, that uh, I think, you know, in an ideal world, if you were just listening to the music and you didn't have the cartoon, you would, even though it's very disjointed, you would know when you got to the end, oh, this is the end, you know, because you feel the musical threads being wrapped up. Um, uh, so I, I, I consider that a great uh, sort of intellectual challenge each time. Uh, and of course, it's a, a great, great education for me. I've, been, I've learned over the last five years or so, I've learned about samba and I've learned about Bollywood and I've learned about the music of China and Japan and I've learned about K-pop. Um, uh, just uh, just an extraordinary sort of extended education about the music of the world because every every two weeks or so I have to roll up my sleeves and <laughs> um, learn about something new. Well, that's great. I love that you put so much dedication into finding out those things. As a fan, you know, as a, as a viewer, that's much appreciated. So, well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, uh, but since it is the week of Mickey Mouse's birthday, he's turning 89 this weekend. Do you want to kind of share what it's been like providing the music for a character as iconic as Mickey? Well, it's been uh, really one of the great musical adventures of my life. I mean, I uh, it's been daunting at times. You look back at the history of this character and of this company, and it is extraordinary uh, how much great music is in that um, uh, is in that trajectory. Um, but ultimately, I think it inspires you to to do your best work. You sit down and you think you you instinctively feel that that heritage actually sort of pushing you forward um, and uh, encouraging you to to sort of step up. So it's uh, um, it's been glorious, I must say. Well, that's good to hear. So you can you can catch the Mickey Mouse cartoons on the Disney Channel. Uh, I've actually been watching them on YouTube. Mickey Mouse has his own channel over there. Uh, the Lion Guard also on the Disney Channel. Veep on HBO. And you said the death of Stalin will come here in March. That's right, March of next year. Cool. Well, I recommend that our listeners check out all of those things. I just I just love the shorts, and I think the music is a very large part of why. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, We appreciate you taking your time to speak to us today about Mickey. Super. Thanks, Derek. Well, that does it for this week's show. Thanks again to Chris Willis for coming on the show and taking us inside the Mickey Mouse cartoons. And to Mickey Mouse... We wish you a very happy birthday and hope to be able to celebrate many more of your birthdays in the years to come. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. You can always find us online at comments at madchatters.net. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at madchatters or go start a conversation with us on Facebook. That does it for us. We'll see you next week. Take a little time to find the magic in every day. Bye-bye now.
So it's a little abbreviated. We only got three topics today. So let's oh, not waste. Five. We have five. I put those first two. Last Where? this first this morning, I said, "Here are two topics. We need some more." Oh, you need to hurry up. I knew I should have commented. Don't forget these two. I knew I should have done that, but I didn't. Oh. I just did. Before? Oh crap! Yep, there they are. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's why I hate messages. We should okay. call each other about everything. I thought it was kind of weird when you said we just need th- three or four. I knew <laughs> it. I was like, Gosh, okay. you guys suck. <laughs> I've got mine done. I did I, mine. I, I have Hold three. on. I know. Hold on. No, this was my favorite. This I didn't even respond to it because I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm sorry. What are we doing right now? We're researching... Uh, I'm thinking I, I got one more. Yeah, trying to do his last two. Oh, right, 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 right. And you're researching uh, your angst from earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. As long as I, everything's normal. Everything's pretty normal. <laughs> yeah. I'm just sitting back. Jeremy's doing stuff, and Derek's digging up old bones. <laughs> okay. I said... If nothing else comes to mind, let's plan on those for tomorrow night. The very next message, the next day, Matt asked, tomorrow night? Question mark. I was what? like, I was like, I'm not even responding to that. You can literally the, read the message right above it that says tomorrow night. I don't know what you're saying. This is, this is going to be in our behind the magic, uh, our documentary. I don't even see this on the message. <laughs> Fake news. Yeah, I think you're making it up. I'm showing it to you right now. I, you're frozen on my screen, brother. Uh. <laughs> All right, we ready? Mm-hmm. What is this, the food thing? Let's take five. We're on take five. <laughs> All right, and our final category tonight. What's that smell on Sunset Boulevard? Excuse me. Going through puberty. 